and welcome to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM, online at cfur.ca or at anchor.fm where we distribute our podcast. We're broadcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Clayton Tanay First Nation here in Prince George, British Columbia. Today's episode of The Abstract is a special episode um, in conjunction with the Inspiring Women Among Us events that are going on in and around Prince George. On this episode, we are talking about feminist and racial issues with three special guests for our show. And we'll be starting this discussion off with Derek Campbell and Minnie Gobi. My name is Derek Campbell, and I'm really excited to be here today with you all. Uh, I'm the executive director of the Prince George Public Interest Research Group, also known as PG PURGS here on campus. I'm also a UMBC alumna, and um, yeah, I'm a woman of color. I am of Chinese descent. I've lived in BC pretty much my whole life, um, and I'm also an adoptee. My parents are white, and I think later in the episode that'll kind of it'll make sense how that like intersects with my experiences and my identity. Um, and I'm a woman and that's me. Great. And Mindy. Hi folks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, like you said, my name is Mindy Gobi. Um, and I'd like to first and foremost acknowledge that I'm calling in from the traditional unceded territory of the Clayton today. Um, I have, uh, I was born and, raised in northern BC in this region. Um, I grew up in McKinsey, BC, and then came to you, Prince George for university and never left. So um, I'm currently employed by the university and uh, I sit on a number of EDI committees um, here. I'm also the daughter of uh, Indian immigrants, specifically from the region of Punjab. And so uh, the topic for um, today's uh, conversation is on microaggressions. And I think that uh, there's a lot of folks who, when I say that, are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's a lot of folks who are going to be incredibly confused. So can we just start like pretty basically with um, like either one or both of you guys just kind of giving the audience uh, like a general definition of what microaggressions are? For sure. I mean, I can I can go into kind of like the real definition if Dara wants to um, paraphrase kind of afterwards, I'm happy to really talk about how the term microaggression was coined. Um, it was coined in 1970 by uh, Black Harvard professor and psychiatrist, Dr. Chester Pierce. He was studying the persistent presence of stig stigmatizing, sorry, uh, representations of black people in television. He defined it as subtle, stunning, often automatic and nonverbal exchanges, which are put downs of black people. And then psychologist Daryl Wing Sue in 2007 expanded the, the definition to include brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral and environmental indignities that communicate hostile, derogatory or negative slights and insults to marginalized groups um, or individuals. Okay, and just to go over that um, a little bit too, so that's both nonverbal and verbal microaggressions. Yes. So quite subtle they can be, I would assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Derek, did you want to? Oh, sorry, go on, Mindy. 
sorry, it can, it can, it can, I guess there's a, uh, another term that could be used as kind of casual. So it's casual, mm -hmm. um, part of like an automatic response. So. Right. Yeah. I think often people, um, there's like another term casual racism. Um, I mean, you could say the same thing with casual misogyny or sexism, but yeah, I think microaggressions are really about those, um, subtle and usually unintentional kind of day-to-day -day things. And, um, I think it's, I really like Mindy that you brought in the history of like how it was coined and um, especially by a black person. They like give us black activists and scholars have given like people like around gender and race. Um, yeah, and like trans rights have provided so much language and research into like how to talk about these things, which is so important to note. Cause I think it gives us the language to differentiate because a lot of people think of racism, especially white people. I shouldn't say a lot of people, most white people think of racism as like you know, people wearing white hoods, burning down um, people's houses or, you know, doing really like uh, overtly violent and hateful things. And that's obviously racism too, but there's so many other layers to it. And to give us language to like differentiate without invalidating the like quote unquote smaller things is really important. Mm. And, and does this fall also within the realm of implicit bias? Absolutely. It's, it's a way, microaggressions are a way to perpetuate your prejudices and biases and stereotypes um, that have been um, created in, in society. It, it's, um, yeah, it's just a, a way of, of those prejudices and biases coming out um, and acknowledging that it's a microaggression and acknowledging that it is a bias of yours um, is kind of the first step. And then, um, you know, obviously from that moving forward is uh, how can you be better, be more aware and, um, you know, be, be an ally in, in this space. Right. And, and, and also I appreciate that you're, uh, I appreciate that the first um, definition that you brought up was in relation to um, portrayal of black people on television, because I'm also from rural BC, predominantly white community. And so the majority of my experiences with people of color while I was growing up was actually from television. So my, you know, uh, early years learning of people of color was whatever Hollywood or the news would portray. So, um, I would assume is that kind of where a lot of people's implicit bias um, or the basis for microaggressions can be developed is through that kind of experience? Absolutely. I think media plays a massive role in, in how we um, view groups and um, yeah, populations kind of around the world. Um, a really great example, and I think that one that comes up for a lot of people of color um, is around, um, you know, being born and raised in Canada, people still ask me, like, where are you from? Like, where are you actually from? Mm -hmm. um, and that's therefore, you know, uh, perpetuating this idea that all Canadians um, look a certain way. And in fact, that's, that's not the case, you know. Um, the specific example I'm talking about, I was actually in the US, um, me and my husband, who is, is white, um, went into a little shop in this uh, city in Can or in Kansas City, sorry. And um, the lady, uh, the shopkeeper was uh, asking us, oh, oh, where are you from? And 
Um, she directed that, that question specifically to my husband and, um, he, he said, Canada, no questions asked. Uh, the shopkeeper then faced me and asked me the same question. And where are you from? And I said, Canada as well. With a puzzled look on her face, I then say born and raised. Mm-hmm. Just kind of putting it out there that Canadians, like I look, I'm, I'm a Canadian. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and yeah. I guess in that, that case, in that uh, conversation with her, you'd felt that the onus was on you to clarify that you are in fact actually a Canadian, even though you've already said that. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I had to justify mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was Canadian. Right. Yeah. I feel like all people of color, like we brace ourselves for that. Like we know when you can tell when someone's asking, where are you from in a context that's like, you know, say you're in a, a newer group of friends or coworkers, and there are people who are from like all over BC, like maybe a group of students. Like there, there are situations where asking where you're from obviously is like um, completely harmless and like everyone's being asked, but you can always tell when the person is, um, what they're really drilling at is why aren't you white? Like where, yeah, that is like you can tell and you always brace yourself and you're always like, at least for me, I'm choosing like, do I want to play dumb and just like make them spell out what they're saying and do I want to just get to the point? Do I want to just brush them off? Um, but then the other thing with brushing someone off is like, as a woman, you're always taught to be super polite and like, you know, to appease people. And like, there's always that thing in the back of your mind of like, you don't want to piss a, a man off. Like if it's a man asking you and he's like, I don't know, like I've had people ask me where I'm from, like in the grocery store and stuff. And they're just like complete strangers. And I might be in public, but it doesn't feel comfortable. Like it's not nice to have someone like digging into your like oh where are you from oh but I mean before that and I always like play around with people because I lived like I grew up in PG I also grew up in Williams Lake before that we lived in Burnaby and so I'll just like go down the list of places <laughs> that I live that are all in BC and I can see on their face that they're like not getting the answer they want like they're just like they're like computing like if she's not white like where is she really from why isn't she telling me where she's really from They'll be like, what's your nationality? I'm like, oh, I'm Canadian. Like, I I have a Canadian passport. Like, I've told that to someone, too, before. Um, and then he cut me off to explain what he meant by nationality, even though what he was trying to get at was ethnicity. And Anyway, but, mm-hmm. yeah, where are you from is, like, a, the most common <laughs> microaggression. Yeah. And the reason I bring up that, that um, example of when I was in Kansas City, I'm no way, you know, painting Kansas City with the same brush that everyone there would ask that question. This definitely happens to me um, in Prince George um, and other spaces that I've gone to. Um, But the reason I bring up that example is just the difference between what my, you know, white male husband was asked versus me, a woman of color um, was asked. So, um, and the difference, you know, he wasn't asked to justify, there was no puzzling. Um, you know, look after he mentioned where he was from and then there was when I was, you know, so just to clarify that. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, I, and I guess maybe the other um, question that brings up too is um, if you're standing there as a couple, do you think that your difference in uh, ethnicity uh, is partially why you were both asked separately where are you from then? I, I think so. Yeah, I think um, 
yeah, I mean, biracial relationships, I guess um, people do not automatically assume that you're together, which I think people shouldn't automatically assume anyways. Mm. Um, but then there's the assumption the other way. One time my brother came to visit me at work and someone assumed that it was my husband. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's kind of an interesting, you know, situation when, when people are assumed to be in a relationship. <laughs> but. Yeah. And I guess like one thing that like I, you know, when I try to have these types of conversations with folks that maybe just like, it's so far out of their realm, like they've never thought about it. Like I, I always throw the example out of like my like white older father who just like is an engineer and lived in that universe his whole life. And it's like, people will try and like, you know, ask like, well, like, like really drill into you of like, well, wh like it's not that big of a deal. Just like, why can't you just let it go? Like, yeah, he made a joke that you're a woman, so you're weak. And it's like, because it, you know, it really like it, it just toils in your mind. So I guess like, I think one of the things that it's important we like, I don't know, get across in the conversation and you guys like, let me know if you feel the same way is like, it's these things that maybe sound really, really minor if you're not constantly experiencing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a reinforcement of, um, othering, mm -hmm. but you're an other, you're not the same. It's a reminder that, um, you don't fit into the, um, societal, you know, construct of what an ideal person is. Um, and in that example of, you know, I guess, you know, if you're not seen as ladylike, let's say, um, that's, that's you not fitting into that person's box of what a woman should be or a lady should be. Yeah. And um, it's kind of just challenging that. And then if you do, it like reinforces their ideas. And yeah. Biases. And I think I think the difference too, like, um, like it does, they do, it does sound like a minor interaction when you don't understand the history of where it comes from. And like, I mean, in our everyday lives as adults, we have interactions with people that aren't the best. Like, you know, someone flips you off the traffic or cuts you off or, you know, like little things like that that happen, but it doesn't necessarily eat at you the same way because it's not rooted in this whole historic um, system of oppression. Whereas like when you experience casual racism or casual misogyny it is um you know it might seem to someone else like it's the same thing as someone cutting you off in traffic but it's worse because you know that it's like pretty directly tied to like the more violent forms of racism or misogyny or you know transphobia whatever kind of whatever um yeah whatever form of intersect or form of oppression we're talking about but yeah, I think that's what makes it like a lot worse because you know in the back of your mind like where their where their um, belief or bias comes from, and it comes from something really ugly. Yeah, and and something that encompasses a, a large scale across society potentially. Yeah, like they're not the only person who thinks that way or believes that stereotype mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, maybe that's something to um, dive in in a bit more depth. Um, we're coming up on a uh, on a break. Here. So we'll come back in a few minutes and uh, dive back into uh, this discussion and maybe talk a little bit more about different microaggressions as well that uh, can happen.
the track Black Girl Soldier by Jamila Woods. You're listening to CFUR 88.7 FM online at cfur.ca. And we're back. We've got Derek Campbell and Mindy Gobi here and we're talking about microaggressions and uh, we've kind of been having a bit of discussion uh, off tape um, hashing out what to discuss um, for this next portion and um, We've had a lot of good topics come up, um, including um, intersectionality a little bit in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, we're speaking with two women of color. So um, oftentimes it's there's a bit of disentanglement to figure out where the microaggression is landing. Um, And then we also wanted to talk about um, the intent versus the impact. Um, So I'm wondering if... um, Dara, if you would mind running through your example that you had there and uh, we can open it up a bit. Yeah. So um, when I think of microaggressions, one that stands out a lot to me because it was just such an odd situation um, or uncomfortable was uh, I was at work once and my coworker and I were off at the same time. So they were giving me a ride and um they called me a little monkey, like just in, in conversation. Like, I think they said, um, like, let's go, you little monkey or something like quite, you know, just kind of endearing. And, um, if you know them, they just kind of talk like that sometimes like saying, you know, darling and stuff like that. And, um, so that comment didn't hurt you that comment. No. And yeah, that comment didn't feel like anything to me. It felt pretty natural considering like, language she typically uses um and just like our relationship and her being older than me and sometimes it being like a little bit of like a like an older sister kind of thing like um and her calling me stuff like that so anyway that didn't that didn't feel like anything to me but my boss overheard and um 
he said to her like oh that's a little bit racist but he kind of said it with a like a smirk like I don't I don't think that he really cared about calling out her supposed racism and again I didn't I don't feel like it was racist at all but I don't think he really cared about calling it out I think he was trying to make a joke like it was he was trying to be smart in a way I guess I don't know why he thought that calling I'm not sure like what he thought he would get out of calling it out like if he thought it'd just be funny or it would make him seem like progressive or something um but yeah he made the situation super awkward and it felt really like like it felt like he racialized what she had said and um and then my friend said to me um are you gonna let that slide and you know she meant it in an encouraging way um and in general i'm a pretty outspoken person i'm pretty comfortable like uh calling people out on stuff but the dynamic between myself and um and that person was that like i work for them you know they're um they're white and i'm not and so talking to white people about racism can be hard like even if you do have a good relationship because they just don't always get it in anyway and so there's that layer of like the dynamic of us being different races and there being like a, a power dynamic there but also a power dynamic in like my employment and then a power dynamic in our gender of like him being a guy and me being a woman and so it felt like in those three regards things were stacked against me and I didn't want to say anything because even though it's um you know even though it doesn't feel necessarily like the right thing to do sometimes it is easier to let things slide like from the perspective of someone receiving like being on the receiving end of that because it's really tiring to call stuff out all the time and explain things and have those conversations with people and you know sometimes you get labeled certain things or called names for like for calling those things out so yeah it was just kind of a weird situation and it always stands out to me because I never said anything to my coworker or my boss because I just didn't I didn't know where to start and like you know I didn't want to make it quote-unquote a big deal but yeah it was kind of a weird situation mm. and I guess that's that's part of the big challenges with microaggressions as well is that in a single instance, it might not feel like it's a big deal, but presumably it's something that's happening again and again and again in different, mm -hmm. slightly different ways, not mm -hmm. always hard to define right in the moment. Um, and and I guess one question that makes me have for you, does, does it ever end up feeling like, does it ever become kind of normalized um, for you? Just kind of, just sort of having to digest these things and, and not feeling empowered to actually say, hey, I didn't really like how that played out. That was... Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, probably like nine times out of 10 in my life, I have just let comments like that slide. And it's only been in recent years that I've gotten a bit older and also more informed on things, which like gives me language a lot to talk about um, racism. But I feel like, yeah, it's only been in recent couple of years that I've felt more comfortable sometimes saying something. Um, but yeah, you, for the most part, like, obviously I can't speak for all people of color, but for the most part, for me, you, I, I don't feel like comfortable or like I want to, like, I don't feel motivated to say anything because, um, yeah, like in a big picture, it's easier to let things slide, but it still, it still like stays with you, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I could also see it being really uncomfortable in the context that you then have to go back to work, uh, with the same boss. And, and in this case, you know, on the face of it, it sounds like he's trying to call out racism, but, you know, either in a either in a kind of exploitative way where he's trying to just make a joke 
um, or in a very careless way where he's not really thinking about whether or not it's actually a racist exchange mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden creating this very uncomfortable charge situation as a result, um, which yeah. then you have to return to that workplace because everybody needs a job. Yeah, and I mean, something that is kind of shitty about it too of the whole dilemma of like, do I say something, do I not? How do I say something without making this person angry or making like putting me in a negative light? But part of that dilemma is that even like for your own mental health and like social ease or, you know, maybe like financial or employment ease, even if it feels like that is the best route to take for yourself of just like letting it go. Um, it sucks because you know that when you let it go in their mind, whatever happened was relatively okay because you were the one who was impacted, but you didn't say anything. So it must not have been that bad. Um, which then feels like it's on you. Like it's your responsibility to say something, but it's not like, I'm not going to put my own mental health or my own, like, you know, um, employment situation or, that kind of thing in jeopardy over a comment like that because like you said like I need a job and um yeah but it just sucks knowing that when every time you don't say something that in that person's mind they they just like don't know any better like they walk away from that interaction and being like that was good you know mm -hmm. and that's what normalizes it and that's what makes yeah. it casual and that's what makes it um, yeah, people just think that it's an okay thing to do because uh, no one said anything um, when in fact it was it was more around, you know, professional repercussions, uh, fear of backlash. There's a number of reasons, um, your own mental health and well-being um, to constantly having to confront, uh, you know, microaggressions. It's, it's really not, it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> I don't know why I yeah. just laughed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess like, I feel like... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dara. I was just going to add that, um, you know, we're going to get into talking about intent versus impact, but I feel, feel like another thing that makes it really difficult to call out microaggressions is because, again, nine times out of a ten, you know that that person didn't necessarily mean, like, they weren't being malicious in what they said necessarily, or... You know, if you ask them, they don't think that there was anything wrong with what they said. Otherwise, they wouldn't have said it. Like, you know that um, that they don't see things the same way as you. And so that makes it harder to call it out because you know it's going to be a difficult conversation or a conversation where um, you don't, you know, walk away seeing eye to eye where you can't convince them to change their mind. Like, it just makes it harder. Whereas if someone is like, you know, an outright jerk and they say or do something that is like very, very clearly you know, racist or sexist or homophobic, whatever it is, it's easier to call that out, but then also walk away from it. And I mean, for example, if, if I had a boss who was like very, very overtly racist, like using slurs, um, clearly discriminating against people of color, like that kind of thing, that would be easy for me to put my job in jeopardy because I don't want to work for someone like that. Like, but when it's someone that like, in general is an all around good boss, good person, and they just obviously like aren't the most informed or the most aware of, um, nuances and racism and that kind of thing it's harder to call that out and then put that relationship on the line because it's pretty easy to talk yourself into seeing that it's not worth it mm -hmm. yeah and i so like one thing that's been like brought to the front of my mind is like um especially during like this this summer when there was like a lot of the like protests with black lives matter and in protest of the murder of george floyd there was this idea of like what does allyship actually look like um, and I'm actually reminded of a, this is kind of lame, but like a tweet 
that I saw from Zoe Miletus, a uh, professor here, who was um, talking about how she she felt really awesome in a meeting one day because it was a hiring committee and somebody else on the committee brought up the fact that there was like one woman on the committee. And she was just like, you know, I'm so tired of having this battle every single time I'm on a committee. And like, it was so helpful for somebody else to like kind of help me in this, you know, fight, whatever. So I guess I'm wondering like, you know, we're, I'm not looking for a prescription of like people should do X, Y, Z, but like, is there a time that you think that you can think of when like, there was an ally that stepped up for you or like if there was a situation where you're kind of like, man, like I really wish my friend would have like said something for me or, you know, something like that situation. Yeah. For, for me, I have an example when, uh, someone, um, I guess discredited my Canadianness because I hadn't seen a specific movie during my childhood. Um, and I wish some of the people around me would have understood that that is, you know, I just, I just wasn't raised with more, I guess, English or white <laughs> entertainment in my, in my childhood, in my life at that time. And so um, specifically the movie was Sound of Music. And I was told that I wasn't Canadian because I hadn't seen Sound of Music. You know, and I didn't realize that that was a checkbox on whether or not that makes you Canadian or not. Um, and I just, you know, I wish someone in that situation, because there was a group of individuals, would have said, I've never seen Sound of Music, because I'm pretty sure there's been a number of Canadians that have never seen Sound of Music, which has no ties to Canadian mm -hmm. nationality, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I. I <laughs> In that situation, it was it was really difficult, and it was like, if it it just felt like, you know, I was reminded that I will I will I am different, and I will always be treated differently. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I guess that's kind of a comment that, you know, if somebody said to me, "Oh, you haven't seen The Sound of Music, you're not Canadian," um, it's not something that really would bother me that much. But I guess if you're in a position where your Canadianness is constantly being questioned because of your because you're a visible minority then it does have a larger impact like the intent of the comment uh doesn't really matter it's the impact on whoever you're saying the comment to that is important in this context and I mean the irony in this case is that I'm pretty sure that the movie is set in the Alps in Austria <laughs> or something like that so exactly. it seems like it's a comment born of ignorance so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's a really good um, analogy of what like microaggressions kind of tend to do. It's like stubbing your toe once. Yeah, you'll get over it. And yeah, you know, it'll hurt for a little bit, but then, you know, eventually it'll get better. But if you keep stubbing your toe on the same spot continually, it's eventually going to, you know, be debilitating. So that's kind of and a, a really good analogy, like a physical analogy of, of what microaggressions do. And if you face those, you know, uh, on a daily basis, multiple times a day, you know, these are debilitating. Um, and it's just like, a rem again, a reminder and a form of, of othering um, and that you're not, you're not part of the, the default. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily like when, you know, when Mindy and I say that we experience these things or like Kristen is a woman, 
regularly. I think if you're not someone who's on that receiving end, you don't, you think that's an over-exaggeration, but it's really not. Like I've experienced microaggressions that were racist or sexist or like, you know, a combination of both um, in the grocery store. You know, I've been asked where I'm from in the grocery store. One time an old lady um, was looking in the Asian section and she turned to me and was like, oh, I wasn't sure what kind of uh, noodles to buy and who better to ask than you. Um, <laughs> I was standing near wow. And um, yeah, like just, I, yeah, I've been asked where I'm from at the gas station before, like pumping my gas. Um, you know, it's like all these little things or like whenever I go to buy something like off the of Gigi or Facebook marketplace, if I'm with my partner, who is a white guy, um, often the person, especially if, like, for example, when I was looking for a vehicle or like, you know, when it's bigger things, often the person will talk more to him than to me, even if I'm asking questions and I'm paying. Um, and, you know, I was the one messaging. It's like all of a sudden because there's a guy there that they're kind of like, and again, a lot of it is subconscious. It's not like they're, it's not always an active choice that they're making, but it is still a choice. It is still like a bias that they're feeding into, but they're like, you know, looking at him more than they're looking at me or like, it really does add up. And it really is like quite a, a regular basis. Um, yeah. I can't really think of like a time when I had someone step up in a situation like that. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. Um, but I can't really think of a time that someone had, but like for, um, a time that I wish someone had when I was, um, in high school. So yeah, like I mentioned earlier, my parents are white. And so I've always kind of just been in white spaces more so than like spaces or communities of color. Um, and my sister is adopted from China as well. And that's where I'm adopted from. So, um, but outside of that, like my close friends and my family are mostly white. And when I was in high school, it was kind of odd. And it was something that I didn't really I didn't really understand a lot of the time and I've done a lot of reflecting over the years as I learned more about racism, but like, um, you know, I didn't hang out with other Asian kids and I didn't, um, I hung out with mostly like white friends and my whole group of friends was basically all white. There was one girl there who, um, has Indian heritage. And other than that, it was just like white friends. And they would often like tell me that they thought of me as white or they would forget that I was Asian or like they would like um you know that that they saw me even though like I'm Asian and they saw me different than they saw other Asian kids in our school who were like you're more stereotypical Asian kids like you know their parents are fresh off the boat and they like bring Asian food to class like for their lunch and they study really hard and they play piano and like all these stereotypical things and my friends would tell me that they saw me differently than that or like that they didn't see me as Asian and they thought it was a compliment and honestly I thought it was a compliment like if you'd asked me when I was 15 do you want to be white obviously I wouldn't have said yes right away but I think that's like where that came from of like not wanting to be seem like I'm different or like I'm other even though like I am different like I'm not white so I am different than my white friends but yeah like I kind of wish that at that time in my life, someone that I knew, and I don't think it would have been any of my other like 15 or 16 year old white girlfriends, but I wish that someone in my life um, that I had like shared with at the time, I can't say I shared like that much with my parents when I was 16, but someone had said to me and been able to explain to me like why what they were saying, even though they meant it as a compliment. They meant it like, 
the whole I don't see color type rhetoric, which a lot of people mm-hmm. um, don't think there's any issue with. They think that that's, you know, the opposite of racism is to just not see color. And that's all where that came from. And um, so, yeah, I wish that someone in my life had been able to explain to me, like, why what they were saying was wrong and why it made me feel weird, even though it was supposed to be a compliment. And yeah, I mean, a lot of those people, too, that I know now, like they've changed and they've learned since then, I've learned since then, and it doesn't bother me now. But yeah, I think that's a big one for me. Yeah, mm. the sentiment that you had there, Dara, about like uh, wishing you were white. I've I've felt that norm- numerous times in my life, like because we saw the white people in our lives, you know, and how they were treated mm-hmm. versus how we were treated. And then for, you know, the white people in your life to say that you're white, you're like white, is to say that white is better also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, wow. Mm. Um, and I guess actually, just since you mentioned the whole I, I don't see color argument, which our premier recently said, um, <laughs> is is the basis for why that's not a good paradigm to uh, prescribe to is, is is it because since everyone is different every person of color has their own history and their own background you know we should be aware that you know people of different nationalities are different and therefore you should just treat di- different people differently because that's just the way it is just as long as it's not being treated unfairly because you're different is that sort of the 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 basis for that i think for me um the way that i've had it explained that really clicked for me uh is that if you if you're not seeing race and you're not seeing color then you're also not seeing different patterns and injustices that are based on race and color like if you're choosing not to see color at all then um you can i mean you could just ignore um racism altogether and that doesn't make racism go away like i think a lot of people who say that and believe that it does truly come from a place of trying to be better and they think oh if i just don't see color i'll see everyone quote unquote the same and i'll just treat them quote unquote the same but um like you're saying jeremy we're not all the same and that's okay there's nothing wrong with the fact that people have different histories have different skin colors have different cultures different languages um that's not the issue like difference is an issue and race itself isn't the issue it's the injustice that gets associated with it so it's like if you're i just think it's very much like a kind of like a band-aid solution that doesn't actually it just actually ignores it doesn't address it's also naive to say that you know Mm -hmm. i don't see color and if you have the privilege to see you obviously see color Mm -hmm. you know like there's a (laughs) You know, color blindness is another way of saying that, um, even though that's a that is very ableist. Um, so then, you know, using terminology like color neutrality um, explains it. But the, the the other aspect of it is that we're just we're you know we're 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 looped into this category called visible minority. So then, how can you say I don't see color, but then describe you know people of color as a visible minority? You know, that's just like, it contradicts itself, um, you know? So, uh, 
just yeah just adding to what dara was saying there mm-hmm. yeah and I, i'm gonna add as well i i like i find that just so frustrating and offensive and quite frankly just like dumb it's it's missing the forest for the trees it's like okay it's great that we want to treat every individual the same but like that's completely missing the fact that society treats people that don't look like you and i like completely other and completely different and so yeah to me it's just like it's you're missing the system of oppression Mm -hmm. rather than just like the individual person like yeah the premier probably wants to treat everyone in his life the same but he's missing the fact that the the institutions of the province don't Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's like stating to an individual that is in a wheelchair i don't see disability yeah exactly you know that therefore you do not create you know places where they have accessibility to you know Mm -hmm. it's yeah. Um, and Sorry, I know, Sarah, I cut you off. Oh, and now no, I'm, really now I'm cutting everybody off too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I was going to mention as well is that it also doesn't acknowledge that, you know, even if tomorrow you're not going to see color and you're not going to treat anybody differently, you're not acknowledging the fact that yesterday or 10 years in the past, people were being openly persecuted for the color of their skin. We just want to thank you two so much for coming on and and talking about this uh, with us. I've certainly learned a lot in the process. Yeah, and it's uh, not an easy topic to talk about and can be uncomfortable. So thanks for being willing to do it on air. Mm -hmm. And sharing your personal experiences, which is not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us and creating space for this dialogue. I think it's an important dialogue to have and um, these conversations need to be had and... um, yeah, thank you. The things I've almost told you, all the things I've thought about you. It takes all my strength to face you, to hold still. And when you give me your attention, Things get lost in translation again Tell you I don't love you at all But I do love you I don't wanna be a liar But I do it every day I don't wanna be so tired But I can't sleep anyway Don't believe the things they tell don't believe the things they tell you no The thing my mother told me Was that everyone would love me But in the dark I feel so lonely I'm not That was... Don't believe the things they tell you from Tegan and Sarah. You are listening to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM online at cfer.ca. Up next is the winner of the podcast contest. Uh, we're going to be talking to first-year student Nadia Mansour about her thoughts and her experiences with beauty and society's thoughts on beauty. I am a first-year student at UMBC, and I've actually lived in Prince George almost my whole life, but a fun fact about me is that I was born in Quinell. So 
I lived there for a few years and yeah, I guess I've, I've adjusted to the winters and everything. And I, I do really love PG. Awesome. Yeah. And, um, and you came to us with a great topic for the podcast contest, which was um, beauty standards. So we wonder if you could kind of just give us a background on, on what got you interested in, in, in submitting that to the contest for today. I think I would start off by saying, um, you know, coming out of high school, high school is like a, a place where everything seems to matter, every little thing. And I think two big things that I think influenced uh, my passion for this topic would be hearing how girls talk about themselves, you know, being surrounded by other girls and stuff. And even just hearing the narrative about how boys talked about girls and even hearing the narrative about how girls talked about boys and just hearing um, statements and stuff that I thought I was just like, this is unrealistic. Like, what are we we're comparing this toxic um, or creating a really toxic environment uh, around this topic of beauty. And so I was like. I got to say something, I got to do something, got to change something, right? Because it's, it, it's harming um, youth, essentially. Yeah. And, and you had said uh, earlier that um, in your later high school years, you got involved in a program called Be More. Would you mind giving us a, a rundown on that uh, initiative and your involvement in it? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, Actually, the whole reason why the Be More campaign came about was because um, there were actually suicides um, at College Heights Secondary in my grade 11 year. So at the beginning of my grade 11 year, there were two suicides that happened within two weeks of each other. Um, and from that point, I became invested in, you know, mental health and, you know, uh, what is mental health? What does it mean? What can we do, et cetera? A big part of mental health is obviously body image and, um how we feel about ourselves and eating disorders, et cetera. So I really wanted to work with youth and I wanted to know what they were thinking or feeling because I wanted to really understand the problem. And I feel like um, it's really upsetting. And I would say one thing that stood out to me was I asked um, this group of grade sixes, I said, and grade sixes are like 11 years old. So put that into perspective, they're 11 years old. Um, and I asked them, I said, you know, how many of you guys have social media? And I would say over 90% put up their hands. And then I went through all the different kinds of social medias, like Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. And um, the majority of people had TikTok. TikTok was the most popular one. And just think about us as adults, as, you know, older teens or in our 20s or whatever, when we're scrolling through TikTok, what is our mindset? How our mindset is, we're comparing, we're like being like, oh my God, this is so cool. Now imagine that mindset in an 11 year old who A, their bodies aren't even developed. You're 11 years old, you're a child. You're literally a child. I mean, maybe some people have started puberty, but that's, your body hasn't even developed and you're comparing yourself to everything that you see. And it's, I think it really, it stems from a young age. And so being able to do this Be More campaign really opened my eyes to, um, how young people are thinking these things. I remember I had a conversation with these two 13 year old girls and I was like, I was just like, hey, can I ask you guys a few questions? Because they seemed really, I guess, passionate or into what I was doing. And so I was like, can I ask you guys a few questions? And they were like, sure. And I asked them, I said, I said, um, there's a statistic that is that, um, 
you know, 80 to 90% of women don't like their bodies. And I said, do you think that you fall in that statistic? Do you think that you ever look in the mirror and don't like your body? And they said, yes. And they're 13. You're, thir- you're a baby. And then I asked them, I said, have you ever felt like you should go on a diet? And they said, yes, all the time. And that's, and that's, that's like the reality. It just blows my mind. And I'm like, how is this not, you know, a huge issue? But anyway, um, because of COVID, um, it is a very hands-on face-to-face kind of like program that we were doing with the kids and COVID has kind of halted, you know, hopes of like continuing it. Um, because the schools don't really want, <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want extra people in there. You know, it's already a risk and everything, which is obviously understandable. But if I had the opportunity, I would definitely continue doing it. Yeah. So I guess like you brought up such a good point. Um, I feel like when I was, you know, growing up as a, as a young woman, it was always like the beauty standards are always what you see in magazines and stuff. And I feel like there was, there was pushback against it, but like uh, now I have nieces and I'm, I'm always thinking about the, the social media side of things like Instagram and, you know, as a, as a grown adult, I can look at Instagram now and be like, Oh no. Like, you know, I can tell when things are fake or when people are like presenting themselves in one way, but like, as, like you said, as an 11 year old, there's no way I'm, I'm able to like, would ever be able to have differentiated between that. So like, do you, was there something in your campaign that you guys were doing to try and like educate around that? Or like, do you see any solutions to this this big issue with social media mm-hmm. um i would definitely say um that the biggest thing is just collectively as individuals just redefining what beauty really is to us i think like that in my submission i mentioned that and like it's such an important point because realistically we can't take down social media we can't we can't change the way that magazines advertise I mean maybe over time but like let's look at it from a very real like very realistic mindset which is that we're not going to be able to change these things and that there are people who completely disagree that there is a problem and there's people who are like well this is just what you got to do you got to look pretty you got to be pretty you got to be attractive like and that's the only goal there's definitely people who completely disagree with my mindset which I respect but at the same time I see I see that um, if we redefine, you know, what beauty is, um, then we could change the game for so many girls and guys who don't always have the means to beautify or, or just don't fit society standards, society standards of beauty. And I think, um, that if we do that, as individuals, because it always starts small. Anything big always starts small. So, you know, we start as individuals and I think it could really, it could amount to something. Um, But it does make me sad that um, in some ways I do feel powerless to really um, change things. But I would say that the most important thing for me when I was doing my Be More campaign and with these young kids is just talking. Is just being like, hey, I was there too. I know what it feels like to, to feel like your body is just never going to be good enough or that 
the way you look is never going to be good enough. Like I've definitely been in that position. And I think just, just talking and admitting it and saying it out loud, there's so much value in that because how do humans connect, right? We empathize and sympathize with each other and that creates connections and understanding between us. So if we can do that and have honest conversations about these difficult topics, like not liking our bodies or wanting to alter our bodies, then we can, we can change things up. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so actually, Nadia, feel free to not answer this question if you're not comfortable to, for sure. Um, but we are meeting over Zoom, and I can see that you are a, a person of color. You're a woman of color. And has, has, has that ever made things challenging for you in terms of, you know, growing up, feeling like there are these beauty standards out there? Um, but then, you know, growing up in a Western culture, being a person of color, has it ever felt challenging you to fit into those typical? Um, it's actually funny that you. Standards? It's funny that you mentioned that because um, okay, so a little background, cool story, is that I so I wear the hijab, so I used to wear it when I was like younger, and then I I took it off um, at the end of my grade ten year because I was you know you're young and and you definitely look around yourself and in Prince George, it's a small town. There really aren't a lot of other Muslim girls going to high school. I was like one out of two people who wear the hijab and there's like a thousand people there. And so um, I definitely would say that like um, there was a, a lot to why I took it off. But one reason I would completely admit is that um, like, you know, it's just, you're not, pretty nobody ever called me you know pretty or beautiful even though I felt like I had so much to offer you know I was doing a million bajillion things and 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 I just wasn't pretty or what people thought was pretty and so therefore I just felt completely out of place and then so I took it off and so I lived the other side <laughs> you know I lived I lived both sides and I would definitely say that people's treatment of you um, is completely different, you know, like when they, when you are, when you are beautiful, it's like, just being honest is like either you get treated differently, you get treated differently by men, completely saw the other side. I completely saw how, you know, honestly, men would, you know, let things slide or be more chill because they're like, oh, it's pretty girl, you know, and then, in, and you see how um, the world is. And then I also saw, so this is a quick story, a little off topic, but when it was prom time in my grade 12 year, I remember um, just helping out with some poster stuff. And I was talking to another girl and she was asking me if I was going to get a prom date. And I was like, nah, all the guys are scared of me, <laughs> you know, just joking around. <laughs> and she said, and I was like, oh, do you have a prom date? And she literally just said, she was like, I'm not pretty enough to get a prom date. And I like, I was like, I was like crying for her. I was like, I was like, what? And she, like, if you think I'm a good person, even this much, like a little bit, like she is the she has a golden heart she is the sweetest like she is just like what I would consider like gorgeous because she has like this touch a big heart she's so kind like thoughtful of every single person yet yet as a society it's like you're not good enough because you don't fit some sort of beauty standard and you're not going to get a prom day and and it's like one little comment like that that like really opened my eyes and 
you know, other things. And later on, you know, I ended up putting the hijab back on because I felt like, I felt like it was like a badass move. I felt like it was like, you know, I, you know, it, like, that's just how I see it. It's like, you know, you know, in, in society and there's all these beauty standards, like I can do whatever the want, whatever I want. Like you, you ain't got nothing on me, you know? I mean, everybody wears a job for, you know, personal reasons and different reasons and stuff. But I would say that one reason that influenced me to wear it again is just, um, it's like taking control. It's like, it's like, I can be beautiful in whatever way. And, um, I want you to get to know me, like talk to me and get to know, my qualities and what makes me such a great person and my beauty or what I look like should not affect that. I feel like that mindset can apply to anybody with even without religion or without the hijab. It's just like being able to look at a person and the first thought that comes to your mind shouldn't be like, oh, like they're attractive. I'll talk to them. If they're not attractive, I won't talk to them. I've talked to people who have that mindset. Like if they're pretty... I'll talk to them if they're not. I'm just going to walk past them. When really, you know what? Quite honestly, some of the like best people that I've met in my life who just have so much to offer are usually people whose society doesn't always deem as completely perfect or adhere to every single societal expectation. And I'm, it, it breaks my heart that sometimes these people don't get the recognition for their beauty um, like they like they deserve and I think that's really sad and that's got to change that's got to change so thank you so much for taking the time thank out you. of your day to come on and, and speak with us and uh, I think this has been a, a great discussion to have as part of uh, inspiring women among us yeah. so uh, thank you yeah thanks no thank you so much for this opportunity and that's it for today's special edition of the abstract thank you so much for listening if you want to learn more about what's happening with the Inspiring Women Among Us events, check out their website at iwau.ca. As for Kristen and I, we are currently getting spun up to release our second season in the new year, so see you then.